Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the MGC Podcast. Today, Pastor Johnny will be interviewing me. We are going to be discussing a sermon I preached over the weekend titled, A Voice in the Wilderness. A link to the sermon will be in the description of this episode. Although you don't have to listen to the sermon to enjoy this discussion, a lot of things we discuss will make a lot more sense if you listen to the sermon first. Well, guys, I hope you guys enjoy. We are actively waiting. Why? Because the world is pregnant with hope, just as Mary was pregnant with the Christ child. As any expectant mother knows, this waiting involves preparation, exercise, nutrition, care, prayer, work, and birth involves pain, blood, tears, joy, and community. We wait for the coming of the Lord once again, only this time it's not a virgin that's pregnant, but the earth. And it is not John in the wilderness, but us. It's interesting, probably many people would think that we would start in Matthew, but you actually pulled back several hundred years uh, to the book of Isaiah. You talk about Isaiah chapter 40, but in the context of Isaiah 39, where it concludes with the end of a story, and then Isaiah 40 begins with words that will not come true for another 160 years after Isaiah 39 has ended. What similarities do you see between that 160-year period and our time? We have expectations of things that we would hope to happen, at least for ourselves as a church. You know, 160 years, we have expected a lot of things to happen, and a lot of the things that we have anticipated to happen haven't happened, and we're still looking forward to the coming of Jesus. We're still looking forward to the fulfillment of of prophecy, but still, just like the waiting or the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah 40 for those in exile, we too still wait in anticipation for God to fulfill his words in our lives, to fulfill his words in the world. And just like the ancient Israelites, we're waiting patiently in exile, waiting for God to break through and save us. So you point out some similarities between Isaiah 39 and 40 and and our period and and the kind of time frame that we're working with, some of our disappointments. Something that it makes me think about is this idea of time gaps in the Bible. Sometimes when I read the Bible, the stories seem like they're right on top of each other. On Monday, God does this miracle. On, On Tuesday, God does that miracle. But, but I've heard you talk about how there are actually significant spans between many miracles in Scripture, sometimes like this, hundreds of years. How does this reality in the scriptural story relate to our own experience of miracles today? The Bible tells us stories of patriarchs, about kings, prophets, and unlikely heroes of faith. And the New Testament tells us a story of Jesus and the apostles, and all these stories are tied together in by poetry. 
What the Bible doesn't really tell us is the story of the average person, the everyday Joe that lived in Israel and in the times of scripture. We don't really know what their experience was. And when you really think about it, a lot of these people likely lived and died and never saw a single miracle ever in their lives. Um, but they did hear about them because they would learn about them when they'd be told the stories of their heritage. And part of the Hebrew tradition is listening to these experiences and claiming them as your own. Like in Exodus chapter 13, verse 5 and 8, God commands the Israelites to tell their kids what they witnessed. And from that generation to generation, they were to say the same words. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Even those who did not see it happen were to speak to their children as if they were there, as if they saw it. And we see the same thing in, in Deuteronomy, like when God speaks to the second generation who did not see the Exodus. This is particularly obvious in Deuteronomy 5, verse 2 to 3, where God says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all here alive today. It's very interesting because those who are alive there, they didn't actually see the covenant be made, but God's telling them like, no, this, this covenant was made with you. And then when you get to like Joshua, especially in chapter 24, verse six through seven, it's very interesting. Like if you go and read that passage, God goes back and forth by saying like, when I made this with your ancestors, when I did this with you, when I said this with your ancestors, when I, now that I do this with you, all of that is to say that there's like a covenant experience between the children of Israel, that they were always to tell each other the stories of what happened as if it was their own, even though they never actually saw it. And this is like what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, when he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offering heirs according to the promise. That's part of the covenant experience as far as like the Hebrew tradition that although you were not the one who felt the whips of Egyptian uh, masters, you are to live your life as if you did, and you are to live your life as if you saw God's great acts in Egypt. And this is the same tradition that we inherit from the Hebrews, that although we were not witnesses to the birth of Christ, we were not witnesses to the life of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we are to live our lives as if we are witnesses to it. Paul didn't see it, but he always claimed to be a witness of it. So I think that when it comes down to miracles and believing like, oh, I need to see a miracle all the time, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but we are to learn of the miracles in scripture and live our lives as if we witnessed them and as if they were true in our lives, as did the children of Israel. And that's not to say that God didn't perform any other miracles outside of the ones that we read in scripture or that God can't do miracles in our lives today. But it goes to show that more important than trying to find a miracle it is more important to see how has god worked miracles in scripture and live a life 
today as if we were witnesses to that miracle, as we were, as we were witnesses of God's goodness, love, and power. I do want to jump back, though, to another part of the experience of those followers of God during this time in Isaiah, that gap between 39 and chapter 40. These exiles, you read Psalms, you read Lamentations, and they're there are some hauntingly painful laments, cries, uh, pain, frustration that's expressed during this time when, when they feel so, so powerfully the silence of God. What are the elements of biblical lamenting? How is it different from just complaining? And what what place does lament have for us as Christians now, if any? Lament in scripture is always presented in the form of poetry. They are prayers of petition arising out of need. But lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely is it the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. So lament is a liturgical practice that assumes hope and that God will, will actually respond. It's not just a matter of complaining and raising all this list of needs, but it is an act of worship that assumes that God is big enough to answer it and will respond to it. And what's interesting about this is that lament is often missing from the narrative of the American church. I was reading this book called in, in the journey through the Psalms written by Denise Hopkins, where she examines the use of lament in the major liturgical denominations. And she found in her study of the liturgical worship in these churches is that what is missing in all of their catechisms and all their books is the Psalms of lament. And in this other book that I read called hurting with God, Glenn Pemberton, he makes this statement that he says that about 40% of the Psalms are about lament, yet less than 20% of most hymnals even quote any of these Psalms. And the Christian licensing, um, CCLI, where churches report what uh, songs they have been singing inside of their churches— in 2012, they made this report that less than five of the top 100 songs used by churches in North America are psalms of, of lament or songs of lament. So it, it's very obvious that as Americans or North Americans, as Westerners, we really do not like lamenting. We don't like the fact that it hurts. Uh, we don't like the fact that it makes us uncomfortable. We don't like the fact that it reminds us of of sad of sad um, of sad things. As we're starting this Advent season, almost seems counterintuitive to me. You know, I mean, I've I've grown up 
uh, very much, you know, have a holly jolly Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. You know, all these songs, all these Christmas songs, this is, you know, this is, this is a happy, joyful, 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 we adore you. You know, I mean, there's all these, all these songs of peace and, and gladness. And this idea of lamentation just seems so horribly sad. Have we been doing this totally wrong the whole time? Uh, should we, is, is there room for both? What, what does this look like? Christmas is definitely a time of joy and a time of happiness, but we need to give our happiness and a joy context. Why are we happy? Why are we so joyful? If we were happy and joyful even before this season started, the reason that the season always begins with Isaiah 40 is because it's a proclamation that is being made in a time of divine silence and a time of divine exile. Advent begins the Christian calendar with the birth of Christ, but the birth of Christ doesn't come into a void. It speaks into a time of suffering and it speaks to a time of divine silence and God makes his proclamation, comfort my people, comfort. The time of exile is over and God is speaking when he was previously silent and that creates the joy. So when we enter into the season, as we enter the season, we remember why God speaking, why God being born is such a good thing. So there is room for both. We begin with lament. And then we acknowledge God's voice in giving us a reason to rejoice. How do these things contribute to us being ready for Jesus? When the exiles in Babylon heard the words of the prophet Isaiah, that God had decreed comfort and that he had decreed their freedom and that he was coming, I really ask myself, how did this change the way that those exiles lived their day-to-day -day life anticipating that freedom? How did they live their life in response to their friends, to their neighbors? In the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29, God told them that they were to be a blessing to the people to the Babylonians. I wonder how did they start living this out differently? How did they start living it out more knowing that their freedom was just around the corner? In the same way, when those living under Roman rule heard the prophet Isaiah be quoted through John the Baptist, I wonder how they chose to live their lives differently. And John tells us in in, in a few words, how they live their life differently, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I am sure that they began to live their life differently in, in, in the way that they related to their neighbors and the way that they related to themselves and the way that they related to God. There were practical implications to good news of knowing that your freedom is just around the corner. So when we hear the good news that the decree has been made and through Christ our exile is over 
and that divine silence is over. What practical implications does that have in the way that we live our life today? If I for a second pretend that Christ is coming back on December 25th, that I know he's not coming back on December 25th. This is not another great disappointment. But if I for a moment um, choose to believe that Christ is coming back on December 25th, how does that change the way that I live here and today? How would I live my life in such a way that prepares the kingdom of God here on this earth for the coming of the king? And I think that when I self-reflect on that, I would change. I, I, there's many things I would do. I would try to spread more joy. I would try to find uh, people who are suffering. I would try to find people who are hungry. I would try to find people who are uh, in deep sorrow and try to, to be of service. I would try to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with more people. I would try to be reconciled with people who I know I've had problems with. I would try to... Um, I would try to walk and journey through life with people who I have neglected. Preparing the way for, for God is looking inside of ourselves and asking ourselves if God was coming back soon, which he is, how would I live my life differently? And that's just the thing about the Christian calendar. It is that Christian tradition recognizes that unless we are given a time and a season to think and meditate about on certain things, we will not do it. That's why we have anniversaries, because unless we have it on our calendar to think about how much our spouses mean to us, we are not going to take the time to tell them how much they mean to us. And that's why the Christian calendar exists. It's a time given in the year for us to remember that what God has done for us, the meaning of Christ coming into this earth, and for a season for us to remember and to think about if Christ was coming into this earth, how would I behave differently? And that's not just something that we do in one season. That's something we should do all the time. But we take the season to focus on that explicitly. And when the season is over, we take what we learned in this season and then we take it with us throughout the rest of the year. And then when we come back to Christmas, we reflect it upon it again and then live it out again and live it out again and live it out again until finally, until finally, Christ comes and ends our time here on earth. But I think that the practical aspect of preparing the way is asking ourselves, how can I live a life that, that brings honor to the coming of the king if he were to come in just a few weeks?
What is Advent? The word Advent comes from the Latin word that means the coming, which refers to the coming of Christ. It is the season that begins the Christian calendar four weeks before Christmas. And since the fourth century, Christians all over the world take this time to reflect on the meaning of Christ's birth, which means God with us. In reflecting on Christ's first advent, Christians also look to the future, to a time when Christ will come again. Advent is a time when we wait expectantly for the full coming of God's reign on earth and for the return of Christ. For four weeks, we live as if Christ were truly coming into the world on December 25th. We ask ourselves, if Christ were coming in just four weeks, how would I live differently? When John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness announcing the coming of the Messiah, the gospel writers quoted Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. But why? And not why prepare a way, but why quote Isaiah 40? Why do the writers of the gospel choose this particular passage to introduce John the Baptist? And the answer lies in that the words God spoke in Isaiah 40 were spoken after a 160-year divine silence and 70-year-long exile. Isaiah 40 represents the end of exile and the breaking of divine silence. And what is most interesting is that the gospel writers do not quote the Hebrew text, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And the difference between both texts is slight, but it is important. In the Hebrew text, it reads, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. While the Septuagint reads, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I, I know what you're thinking. So what? The difference is important. The Hebrew text reads as a decree being made by God to prepare a road in the wilderness. The Septuagint text, translated after the exile, reads as one who has obeyed the decree and is already in the wilderness building the road. The New Testament writers quote the Septuagint because they see John as one who is obeying the word of God in the desert. Long ago, God made the decree announcing freedom for his people, and here was the proof that God was being faithful to his word, just as he said in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Just as in the time of John, we are waiting for the coming of the king today. And just like John, we have work to do. We must prepare the way. We are waiting, but we're not passively waiting. We are actively waiting. Why? 
because the world is pregnant with hope, just as Mary was pregnant with the Christ child. As any expectant mother knows, this waiting involves preparation, exercise, nutrition, care, prayer, work, and birth involves pain, blood, tears, joy, and community. We wait for the coming of the Lord once again, only this time it's not a virgin that's pregnant, but the earth. And it is not John in the wilderness, but us. We are the voice that cries in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. We are the midwives making sure that the conditions are right for the coming of the King. Just like Mary and John, we live in the expectation of the coming of God's kingdom on earth. But as we wait, we also work. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the MGC podcast. If you haven't done so yet, give us a follow and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out on the show. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Grace and peace to you.